The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, church. I could hear that song every Sunday. (laughs) Welcome in the name of Jesus. And Merry Christmas to all of you who are here and all of you who are joining us online this morning. This morning, I want to proclaim the gospel to you. And Brett and I regularly try to proclaim the gospel, and I hope that you hear it either explicitly or implicitly every Sunday. But today, I want to proclaim the gospel in a way that we don't always hear, in a new key, in a different voice, an interpretation of the same story, but told or explained in a different way. And it may not be one that you've always heard, but I assure you, it's as old as the gospel itself, and it is faithful and true. So on this Sunday after Christmas, as we continue celebrating the birth of Christ this morning, and as we look forward to a new year, Our text, our Christmas text, comes from Titus, chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. It says this. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, as always, we give you thanks. And we thank you for your word, who has made flesh, and blood among us, and whom we celebrate this day, day after Christmas. And God, we confess, as always, that your word is our life. And so this morning, we ask for ears to hear. We ask for hearts to follow and lives and bodies that will obey. And God, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of Jesus Christ who became flesh and blood and lived among us, we pray. Amen. When the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. When we think of the event of Christ's life, the one event of Christ's life that saves us, our mind immediately goes to Jesus' death. In fact, that's what we regularly preach, that Jesus died on the cross and that his death saves us. And it's appropriate that we should think this way, for Paul says this, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, that the death of Jesus does reconcile us. But that's not 
the only way this story goes. That's not all there is to this story because actually Paul goes on in this same text in Romans and he says this. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We celebrate Christmas, but we don't often consider how the birth of Jesus saves us. How the incarnation of God who became flesh and blood and dwelt among us, how that actually saves us. When the kindness and the love of our Savior appeared, he saved us. The early church often talked about the incarnation, and they talked about this very thing, about how the incarnation of God, who became an infant, who became flesh and blood, who took on human form, how this saved us, they often talked this way. In fact, there was an early church leader, in fact, he lived in the fourth century, he's born in the late uh, he was born in, the, born in the fourth century, but lived in the, in the, the fifth century, Athanasius. And Athanasius was considered, is considered one of the church fathers. And he, he wrote this text. He wrote this, now a book. It's called in, on, on the Incarnation. It's the name, the title of the book. Where he talks about how that when Jesus, when God became human flesh and blood, that how Jesus becoming a human being, the divine becoming human and sharing in our humanity, it actually brings us back into harmony with God. Because it's the solution to the problem that he says that we've been separated or that we've fallen away from God. In fact, he writes this because in the early church, they debated quite a bit Jesus' divinity and humanity. For like three or four centuries, they debated Sometimes they emphasize the divinity, sometimes they emphasize the humanity, but they debated this, and it's funny because usually when we, if we ever get to church history or talk about this in church, or if I talk to students about this in church history, most of us are just kind of shaking their head and just thinking, all this about the essence of his essence and his nature, and you have all this stuff that I won't bore you with, because in a sense, it bores us, and we think, what in the world, why would they argue about this? It seems silly to argue about the nature of Jesus, his divinity, and his humanity. But I assure you, this was not something that was silly to them. Because the whole gospel hinged on this. Makes me wonder, in a thousand years, if Christ has not come back, the things that we argue about, how silly they'll be. How they won't get it. Why would they argue about this? This doesn't make any sense to us. Actually, in the creed, simply in the Apostles' Creed, but extensions in this throughout the different creeds, which is partly trying to answer this question about Jesus' humanity and his divinity, the Apostles' Creed says this, 
It says that I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. When I share this with students, they're often uncomfortable with a few things about the creed. Some are just uncomfortable with the creed itself. But there are a few things about the creed. And one is the emphasis that Mary gets in the creed. And probably because it has something to do with, with Catholicism and the way that Mary is, is emphasized in Catholicism. But I point out that Pontius Pilate gets a shout out too. But we don't have a problem with that. So then I asked the question, why does Mary get a shout out in the creed? And if you look at the creed and what it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The reason that Mary makes it into the creed is not just because of Mary, but it goes together, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. In other words, one of the things that the creed, which was a a baptismal confession for the early church, and this is why the church often recites it every Sunday, it's because you come to church and you rehearse or you recite your baptismal creed. You recite your baptismal confession. But this was one of the confessions that the early church made in its baptism, is that I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, In other words, what you're confessing there is that Jesus is fully God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeremiah. (laughs) He knows the gospel when he hears it. And born of the Virgin Mary, he's fully human. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God. Born of the Virgin Mary, fully human. Jesus is not like the Greek mythology of the centaur. You know what the centaur is? The the mythical creature that's half man, half horse. The church didn't confess Jesus is like half man, half horse, half divinity. Half humanity. But he's often called the God man. And this is central to what we confess and proclaim as Christians because if he's God, if he's only God and not a human being, then he didn't really suffer and he didn't really die like human beings do. And if he's only a man and he's not God, then he's just another man that died. But what the early church said and what the gospel is, what they're trying to work out about Jesus' incarnation or Jesus' humanity and divinity is that at Christmas, at the time of Advent and the conception of Jesus, when Jesus is conceived and then is born and given life in human form, What the confession is that he's born, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that he's fully God and he's fully human is this. That in the conception of Jesus, in the incarnation of God, in the birth of Jesus, 
divinity and humanity come together. In Jesus Christ, heaven and earth are reconciled. In Jesus Christ, God and humanity have been made one. Reconciliation. So on Christmas Day, in fact, before Christmas Day, on Christmas Day, God reconciled humanity and divinity. God reconciled all of creation with himself because he became a created being. And so before you think, wait a minute, Ben, I've never heard this story. What about the death? What does the death do? Don't, don't hear me say that that's not part of the story, but Here's another way of interpreting the story of how the death plays into it. By the way, Paul's not wrong what we read earlier. But there's more, way, more than one way that the church and Scripture has talked about salvation. Here's how the story goes according to the early church. Is that in Jesus Christ, humanity and divinity are reconciled. And as Jesus goes on in life, he's tempted. And the temptation is that to be corrupted by sin, which would separate humanity and divinity again. It would like separate Jesus from himself in a sense, right? In some mystical, I don't understand way that was debated by the early church. And not only was he tempted by sin that would separate humanity and divinity from each other, but then death came along and when he died, they thought, that's how. That's how we'll separate them. Because if Jesus can die, he can be separated from the mortality that comes with being God. But Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, faced death as a human being, as God, he faced death, and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is God's affirmation that is God's affirmation and assurance that Jesus' divinity and his humanity will never be separated. And his affirmation and assurance to you and I forevermore that humanity and divinity are forever reconciled. This is the gospel. And it's not because of the righteous things we had done. But it's because of his mercy. Which should sound familiar to you. But if you look just before in verse 3, Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Just before we get to our text this morning in 4 through 7. It says this. It says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This reminds God's people of a story or stories that we find at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4. 
You remember in Genesis chapter 3, what we call the fall? You have Adam and Eve in the garden. And they're allowed to eat from any tree in the garden, except for the tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil, right? And then the serpent comes along. He says, will you really die if you eat this fruit? And seeing that the fruit was desirable. And it was good for gaining knowledge. And that it can make them like God. I mean, all of these things, right? Knowledge is good. Wisdom's good. Desire to eat is good. Becoming like God. We, we use that language a lot in positive ways. But you see, they were foolish. We know they were disobedient. You know from the story they were deceived. And you also know from the story that they'd become enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. So you see, right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, desire, passion, pleasure. But then in chapter 4, you have this next story about Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain worked the fields, and Abel had flocks, and they both brought their offerings to God, and God favored Abel's. And he looks at Cain and says, why are you so upset? Why are you so envious? Why are you showing malice? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door? And then Cain, do you remember the story? He takes Abel out into the field. And he's envious of his brother, and he hates his brother. And what does he do? He kills him. So right from the beginning, you have these two stories. And this text, Titus 3.3, 3, should remind us that we're foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions. Genesis 3, the fruit. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, Cain and Abel. This is not just a story of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. It is the story of all humanity. And desire is not bad. God created us with desire, but it's desire that's twisted and distorted. And God is not caught up in some twisted, distorted Desire, but his desire is for us and for what's best of us. That's his kindness. And God does not hate, but God is reconciling. That's his love. This is how God expresses his mercy towards us. And it says this, that he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. This washing of rebirth is talking about baptism. In fact, we talk about it in different ways. We talk about it as rebirth or new creation or one that's used quite a bit in this day and age to be born again. And the early church understood that when it says he saved us through the washing of rebirth, that it was the Christian practice of baptism is the way that we entered into and participated in the life of God. In that reunion 
that reconciliation. Because when the early church baptized people, they did it a little bit differently than how we do it today, at least in our practice, where we lay people back into the water and up, representing the death and resurrection of Jesus. We've talked about this before, because their baptistries weren't, they weren't really made to lean back and go forward. They were really made to crouch down and to come back up. In fact, it was symbolic. We baptize the death, burial, and resurrection, but the way they baptized was that you crouch down into the fetal position, into the water, and then you come out of the water born again. A new birth. That's how they conceived of baptism and what was going on. It was to participate in the Advent and Christmas story where God becomes human being and reconciles humanity to himself. Where God becomes flesh and blood, he becomes a creation, and heaven and earth come back together again. Where God becomes a little baby born, and you and I participate in that reconciling act through baptism. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit because when we're baptized, we receive this Holy Spirit and this Spirit is an empowering Spirit for life. This is what this text means is that you're empowered for the life of God. You're empowered to live a reconciled life. Reconciled to God and here's the key. This is the way the gospel goes. You're not only reconciled to God, you are reconciled to everyone sitting around you. You're reconciled not only to God, but to each other. We've told this story, is that the, the Advent story begins in hope. It's a story of love that's pushed along by joy, and it always ends in peace. Think about how much hatred and violence is in the world. Let's not even start with violence, because most of us aren't violent and experience the kind of violence that we think of when we hear of violence. Think about how much hatred you feel just in these days. And to be honest, think about the ways you are tempted to hate, to envy to show malice. But it is by God's Spirit that He empowers you and I not only to be reconciled to God, but as the song says, to love one another. We're empowered for peace that works for harmony and unity, fellowship, and reconciliation. So that, Paul says, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I mentioned Athanasius early on in the sermon. Athanasius has this very famous quote from that writing on the incarnation where he says this, and it's been interpreted and misinterpreted in many ways, but here's what he says famously. 
He says that God became what we are so that we might become like he is. He says God became human so that we might become like God. And what he's not saying there is that God became a human being so that we become little deities. But what he's saying is, is that God became a human being so that we could participate in the life of God. That we could fully bear his image. And here's what that life looks like for God. It's an incorruptible life. It's free from twisted desires. For God cannot be corrupted. And so God became human so that we could become like God, incorruptible. And God also became human so that we become like God in the sense that God has eternal life. God always has been, he is, and always will be. And so, we've been justified by his grace that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. The life that God has. And hope. It's part of the Christmas story. We're going to talk more about hope in January, but I want to say this about hope. The biblical hope is, is living into the reality that hasn't fully arrived yet. So we know there's still corruption. I feel it all the time, the corruption of my own desires. But one day, there will be no more corruption. know it to be true. That's the reality that's on its way coming. So empowered by the Holy Spirit, live into a life where your desires aren't corrupted, but your desires are in line with God's desires. Because those desires are eternal. There's still hatred in the world. Unfortunately, too many of us have experienced it, whether because we've hated or we've been hated. But one day, there will be no more hating. You won't experience hatred, nor will you be tempted to hate. It will not exist in the world. So, powered by the Holy Spirit, Live into a life of love and not hatred. Because the life of God, the eternal life to which you have been baptized into, to which you have believed the gospel, that eternal life is not somewhere in the future. That life starts now. Life lived in harmony with God So when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. That is the good news of Jesus.
Jesus Christ. That's the gospel.